Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone on Voice America, voiceamerica.com women. And joining me this morning are Murray Friedman, MD. He's a clinical professor of OBGYN at the Medical College of Georgia, and Karen Giblin, president of Red Hot Mamas, and we're here to talk about sex and menopause and a new study that has come out about sex and menopause. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you for having us. I have good morning, to say Catherine. good morning, and I want to say to both of you, I'm, I'm in this category, this postmenopausal, so I'm really interested sex and menopause, but I always thought, and it's not true, that sex and menopause is an oxymoron, which is not the case, right? Um, we have a lot of baby boomers experiencing menopausal symptoms. As of now, 20 million women are expected to reach menopause in the next decade, so we have a whole... Millions, a whole slew, a whole group of women in this stage of uh, menopause, so we need an open dialogue. We need to be able to talk about it, so let's do that. Uh, Dr. Freeman, give us some of the statistics, uh, menopause statistics. Sure. Obviously, all women ultimately go through menopause. Uh, the average age of menopause in the United States is uh, 51.3 years, um, and uh, many women begin to have symptoms uh, before they have their final menstrual period, and menopause is simply defined as once a woman has been 12 months without a, a period, then she's considered postmenopausal. And women begin to have symptoms as early sometimes as age 35, and from the onset of these symptoms until she's been 12 months without a menstrual period, she's considered in this perimenopausal transition. So this period can be accompanied actually by more hot flushes and flashes than actually are typically experienced after menopause. So it's, it's important to understand this, this transition as well as the postmenopausal state. All right, so women, you've mentioned two of the symptoms, uh, you know, hot flashes uh, mm-hmm. being one of them, but there's a lot of other symptoms, I think, that come with menopause that women are not aware of that are confusing, that affect their personal, professional, social lives, and uh, I think women are afraid to talk about it. We have a lot of information, but the information is one thing, but being able to talk about it is another. You're, you're absolutely correct. In fact, the, the recent survey that was uh, uh, just published that was conducted under the auspices of Karen's organization, Red Hot Mamas, addressed that very point. They were interested in sexuality after menopause, and perhaps, Karen, you might want to comment on what the study was designed to uncover. Well, yeah, and Karen, Hot- first tell us, Red Hot Mamas, what is it? Not everybody knows who and what Red Hot Mamas are. Red Hot Mamas is a national menopause education and support program, and the programs are offered free to women all over the United States. And uh, we're located in hospitals all over the country, and we have a large website, which is redhotmamas.org. But what we wanted to do is we wanted to see if there was life between the sheets or if sex was just mission impossible after (laughs) menopause. So we really wanted to understand menopause, sex fully, and look at some of the commonplace complaints that women were sharing with us. And we certainly found some key results uh, with the survey. All right, so what are some of the complaints? What are some of the issues? So, well, some of the issues, more than 50% of the women in our survey were having less sex than they were before menopause, and the majority of them said that it impacted their relationship. And um, Dr. Friedman will talk about some of the vaginal dryness issues and the vaginal changes because that caused that two-thirds of them to have less sex. Yeah, it's interesting, Catherine, you asked about other symptoms. Uh, in, in Karen's survey, uh, 90% of the women uh, who participated listed hot flushes or flashes as a common symptom, um, and 90% of the, of the participants were aware of flushes, whereas less than one-third of the people surveyed were aware of some of the pelvic changes that occurred. And that's probably the, the principal finding in the study was that these women valued their sexuality. Three-fourths of the uh, over a 1,000 women surveyed uh, said that the decrease in their sexual frequency was problematic to them. They felt it was a quality of life issue, yet less than half of the women uh, discussed it with their partner, and less than half 
rated their sexual satisfaction as being adequate. So there was considerable awareness of the decline in sexuality after menopause, and the symptom that really uh, is primarily related to this is the one that uh, the change that occurs in the, the female pelvic reproductive organs uh, that's the result of, of declining hormone levels. I think that's so important that you bring this up because I, I so agree with you. I mean, I know I have a whole group of girlfriends who fall into that category. And, yes, they'll talk about their hot flashes to Absolutely. anybody, you know, to the man yeah. on the street yeah. or their kids, but no one wants to talk about vaginal dryness. It's exactly. It's, it's, stigma. Stigma. it's sort of under the radar screen uh, yeah. uh, of the women who were symptomatic, that is, those that had flushes, and or other symptoms, 64% of the women in the survey after menopause, 64% complained of dryness, discomfort with intercourse, and literally being aware of a shrinkage or, or narrowing of the, uh, of the vaginal opening. So that although 90% of women were knowledgeable about vasomotor uh, um, hot flushes, only 35% were even aware that these vaginal changes were occurring, and only 13% were really aware that there's therapy that can prevent and treat this. Right. I think so a lot of about... women are, are caught off, off guard, um, especially when they start noticing the changes in the perimenopausal. They feel they're too young for menopause. They're having the hot flashes, the sleep problems, the dryness issues. I call it the Sahara decade. Women start noticing changes in their dry skin, dry hair, dry eyes, and now the dry areas in their, in their vaginal tissues. So I think there women, a lot of women are caught off guard. They're embarrassed to talk about um, it to their doctors and to their partners. And there's a serious lack of communication especially around the sexual issues related to menopause. Yeah, I think you're so right, Karen, and I think one of the reasons perhaps, especially now when women are perimenopausal going through menopause, it doesn't fit with the rest of their lives because everything else is going fine and they're healthier and they're doing more things and sometimes doing more than they ever did and then all of a sudden, I don't have any estrogen left and all, how could this be happening to me? So mm-hmm. I think Dr. Freeman uh, mentioned but there is treatment. There's things that you can do. Well, first you have to be able to talk about it before you can seek treatment. Right. And, and just recognizing that therapies are available is important. Uh, and Karen mentioned the dryness. 51% of the women in the survey were aware of dryness, and three-fourths to four-fifths of these women recognized recognize that this adversely affected their sexuality. And you mentioned therapy, just simple over-the-counter therapies, lubricants, are very, very effective in alleviating some of the dryness. Unfortunately, the progression of the, of the vaginal atrophy, that is the shrinkage, the change, the narrowing, that's progressive after menopause. They, uh, the hot flushes uh, tend to abate or, or lessen uh, within several years of the menopause, whereas the vaginal changes only get worse with time. So that sounds ominous. Does that mean that it just it's a downward spiral till the day you die? Or Absolutely it... not. <laughs> In fact, <laughs> interesting that, that you'd mention that because two things really impact the delay or prevention um, of, of the vaginal changes. One, of course, is sexual activity itself. That's a, a very important feature. The other is the use FDA-approved estrogen therapies to prevent the, the change. What's perhaps equally interesting and really needs to be noted is that both of these factors contribute to the health of the, uh, of the female organs. In the absence of both, that is, decreased sexuality and no estrogen or low estrogen, this, this change, this atrophic uh, uh, change becomes compounded and accelerates. So both are important, and when both are utilized, you can really delay or almost prevent these genital changes. So how do we open up the lines of communication? I mean, that, have- that's really important because I think the best advice is to learn about menopause together with your partner. Um, men oftentimes feel helpless. They, they even, even when they want to support the woman, and they really aren't even prepared for some of the symptoms that we have as women. So talk over the concerns with your partner. I think that's important. Explain some of the sexual changes uh, that you know to your partner that these aren't a sign of rejection. These these are just normal changes that occur. And but and then t- 
bring your partner to your doctor if necessary and go to websites. We have great websites that I could recommend to you that they can get information, both men and women, uh, to learn about some of the changes that are, that are occurring. Copewithmenopause.com is excellent, redhotmamas.org and menopause.org, all good websites to get information. But bottom line is open that communication with the, your partner and with your doctor. I think that's so important, and we have a couple minutes before we take the break, but when we come back, I do want to talk more about this whole communication thing, because I know from from experiences from my, you know, friends and, and uh, all of the women and even people, women that I work with at the, you know, going through menopause, this whole issue of their partners feeling like they're being rejected, which sets up this not a good situation for, obviously, for their, their uh sexual relationship because men feel, well, they feel rejected. They feel the women don't want to have sex with them anymore and they don't realize it may be painful, uh, but it has nothing to do with their partners. And I think that's a huge issue. You're yeah, right. You're correct. Absolutely right. In fact, in, in Karen's survey, 84% of the women in the survey sought information about menopause and about sexuality. 65% talked with a health care provider, but still there's this void of communication between the partners. That's, that's critical. Yeah, that is critical. We'll be back in a minute. We're talking to Dr. Murray Friedman, who is the clinical professor of OBGYN at Medical College of Georgia in Augusta, Georgia, and Karen Giblin, president of Red Hot Mamas, Sex and Menopause. You're listening to Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone on Voice America Women, voiceamericawomen.com. We talk with you, not at you. We're Voice America, Women's Radio Network, the new face of talk radio. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show. For women, men, children, and families, Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. What it comes down to, ladies, is that defining line between been there, done that, and ain't going back, baby. Yeah, I've heard them call you yuppies and baby boomers, maybe even dolls, babes, darling, sugar, and sweetheart. But I say that women are truly amazing. Join Dr. Marlene for Amazing Women, Brains, Beauty, and Style every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific right here on the Voice America Women's Radio Network. Join Ava Lake every Wednesday afternoon at 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for an exquisite look into the art world and the stories that define the art and the artists. Each week, Ava will host a variety of guests, from the critics, curators, gallerists, to the players and artists who make it happen. That's the art world with Ava Lake, Wednesdays at 3 p.m. right here on the Voice America Women's Channel. Talking about what you care about. News, relationships, health, finances. Voice America, Women's Radio Network. listening to the Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. We're back on Voice America, voiceamerica.com women. And joining me this morning is Dr. Murray Friedman, professor of OBGYN at the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta, Georgia, and Karen Giblin, president of Red Hot Mamas, and we've been talking about sex and menopause. And yes, you can have sex and be going through menopause. And uh, before we took the break, we were, Dr. Friedman, Karen, we were really talking about the issue of communication. I mean, when you're going through menopause, when you have vaginal dryness, when you have all the symptoms of menopause and you want to still have good sex, then you have to be able to communicate with your partner. And we don't seem to be doing that. That's one of the major issues, I think, with the, the baby boomers. Well, I think you can turn up the heat by by improving communication. Or 
you need to, um, you, we know that sex builds intimacy and keeps couples feeling fulfilled as well as happy. And if a partner, one of the partners feels frustrated sexually, it's really not providing for a good relationship. So key is communication is, is important to keeping a healthy relationship happy. What, you know, I thought about this when I, you know, when I, 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 during the break, I was thinking, you know, it's difficult for men to understand the issues and the symptoms of menopause. Do you think, and this is a little bit off base, do you think lesbian women have less difficulty because they both go through menopause together? I think they, they both, have, they, equally, they have the same issues if you don't talk about them. I think the same thing is true in the couple. You know, males are, are as reluctant as females to discuss sexual uh, difficulties. I mean, certainly there are not many men that admitted to erectile dysfunction prior to the availability of therapies. And I think that they're not any more likely to talk about it than women. And, and there are studies that have looked at whether women were comfortable discussing this with their health care provider, et cetera. And by and large, the majority of women, as well as men, were not very anxious to discuss this um, with, with doctors. And, and not many men went to the urologist and asked about erectile dysfunction until it became popular and that therapies were available. I so think that's a good point, doctor, because I think it helps... It- it compounds the problem. You have the one partner going through menopause and the other, uh, you know, the, the male partner having difficulties with erectile dysfunction. Right. Uh, you, and, you, mentioned, you mentioned a very interesting point because I've conferred with urologists in our area and uh, they're very attuned to the fact that if you're going to correct a male's dysfunction, that is erectile dysfunction, then you certainly want to prevent and correct a woman's vaginal atrophy. It's almost cruel to have fixed his problem and not have fixed her dryness. So it, it ought to be in concert with the partner, uh, both, both the, the vaginal dryness and, and atrophy as well as the male dysfunction should be addressed jointly. I mean, it is a partnership. And, it is a uh, partnership, and I so agree with you. And I guess the, the onus is on, I think, obviously, it's on the, 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 the partners, the male, the, the man and the woman, but is it also maybe on... Our healthcare system, like our physicians, maybe they need to. I mean, I know that my gynecologist never brought it up, never asked, you know, whether you have vaginal dryness. You know, they ask these general kinds of questions. Uh, or even my partner, his his uh, urologist doesn't routinely ask you. I, I guess they're beginning to more and more whether or not you are suffering from erectile dysfunction. But shouldn't that just be part? Of, it becomes Ab- routine. You're, you're absolutely right, Catherine, but it's interesting. There was a study published several years ago where they uh, interviewed or, or queried and questioned three, correct, uh, questioned 200 women about if they had a sexual problem, how, how would they feel about, A, talking with the doctor, and, and almost 90% didn't want to bring it up because they thought it might embarrass the doctor, they thought there was no therapy, or that the doctor might blow them off and say it was not important. So they were really very reluctant to bring this up, just as you mentioned. Uh, many of the physicians aren't comfortable with it. Many people don't recognize that there's a therapy uh, for this. And as, as Karen's survey showed, less than 15% of the women were aware that there was a therapy for this, this vaginal change that was occurring. Well, now you are at a medical college, so you're there, right? You are with the students. Are they doing Correct. anything within the, you know, with young doctors in terms of training them to be... You, you asked a very interesting question because there's precious little time spent in training uh, in reference to sexual problems. It's sad, but they have a very uh, uh, busy, packed curriculum, and it doesn't get a lot of attention, unfortunately, because it's like many things, it's a quality of life issue rather than a serious medical illness. So unfortunately, these quality of life issues sometimes go unaddressed. But as, as Karen and I are both trying to promote, I mean, this is the last third of life. It's not, it's not the, the beginning of the end. It's simply the end of the beginning. And we can enhance a couple's relationship. And as the survey demonstrated, this is an important uh, quality of life issue. Uh, Intimacy is important in the couple. We need to make people aware of the fact that these therapies are available. And don't you think also, uh, Doctor and Karen, that uh, you know, if we're living longer and we're going to live longer as sexual human beings, that our whole our 
being sec- we are sexual human beings, and that does affect the quality of our life. But even more direct, I think it's even more direct, don't you? I mean, I think that we're you're, healthier you're... if we have sex. It reduces stress. I mean, there's a whole litany of things we could discuss that's related you're to us. You're absolutely correct, and it's interesting uh, that you mention that because if you if you think about it, uh, Catherine, the primary or number one reason that women are not sexually active after menopause is simply the lack of an acceptable, available, conventional partner. We can treat women with uh, with uh, hormone therapy and, and if they continue to have sex, and we can prolong their ability almost indefinitely. Unfortunately, it's the males that can't keep up. So we need to remember it's, uh, you know, as long as you use it and don't lose it, for a female, it's much easier to uh, continue her sexuality after menopause than it is for most males. Yeah, and I think another part of this, you uh, uh, you know, as one ages, you can have sex in a different way. And sometimes it's just simply uh, maybe you can't have sex at, or it's, it, you don't enjoy it at 12 or 1 o'clock in the morning, but you enjoy, you enjoy it when you get up in the morning or, have it at, or at lunchtime you're, or when you're, you're, you know, you're, when you're wide awake. I mean, simple things like that can be changed to enhance your sex life. Well, you, you point out a very important physical uh, change that occurs or, or an important physical aspect of this in that hormone levels, particularly in men, tend to peak at about 4 or 5 in the morning after rest, so that after rest, the testosterone levels are literally higher than they are at any other time of day, so obviously function would typically be better in the early rising hours of the day, typically, you know, 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning. Uh, But one of the things you also mentioned that's often overlooked is the fact that as we age, sex is not so much an orgasm-oriented event as it is an intimacy-oriented event. And and people really need to be aware of that because younger males, it's all about orgasm. I mean, there's this physical need. And we did some studies looking at uh, uh, rates of orgasm in younger men, and it was considerably higher than that of, of women, whereas as they aged, the orgasm frequency tended to be similar in, in both sexes. So it, it tends to be more of an intimacy-oriented rather than a physical orgasm-oriented event as, as couples became... Uh, uh, middle-aged and older. I think it's important that that sex does become more challenging, but we can turn up the heat with more sexual creativity, uh, extra caressing, massaging, massaging one another, and 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 just communicating better. So just because you know our hormones may be running amok at times. We can still have those lusty feelings again, and it's and I think it's key that we ha- that the physicians take a health history of their patients and talk to them and open that line of communication, just like you mentioned before, and share what products are available to release some of the discomfort that we may be feeling and the pain that may be associated with some of the sexual changes. And I would also like to encourage women to talk to their partners and bring their partners to their doctor's offices with them, and again, learn about menopause because I think the key is knowledge. Uh, if you understand what the process is uh, and the effect it may be having on, on you personally and your body, then I, th- I think that, that that will be impactful in creating a healthy relationship. I so agree with you, Karen. And, you know, it's interesting. Women, young women, are so intent on bringing their husbands with them when they get pregnant and mm-hmm. when they're going to have a baby, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and then, but, you know, in the case of when you're going through menopause, it's kind of like, uh, surrounded in secrecy, then you don't talk about it and you don't bring your partner with you. And we want to do exactly the opposite. We only have three minutes left, but there's one other issue that, that one of my listeners had brought up is that, you know, that lack of, or they call it a lack of sex drive or a lessening of the sex drive. And one of my girlfriends said to me the other day, said, I feel guilty about it because I don't want to have sex as often. And, uh, and my partner takes that as a rejection. Uh, so that's another issue. You're, you're absolutely correct, and it's interesting because you now are talking about libido, which has to do more with testosterone than it does with estrogen. Estrogen impacts the genital tissues and the changes that occur, and once we pro, we uh, we correct these these physical responses with the estrogen and prevent genital atrophy or vaginal atrophy, we need to think about libido. Interestingly enough, as a woman goes through natural menopause, the ovaries continue to make testosterone, and most perimenopausal and early menopausal women don't suffer from a hormonal insufficiency. They've got plenty of testosterone. 
Contrastingly, if a woman undergoes a surgical menopause, you may remove half of her circulating testosterone at the time of surgery when you remove the ovaries. These women typically do tend to suffer um, hormonal insufficiency in that their testosterone levels can be low. Isn't it interesting that, you know, we're the, we're the women... Ago, we should have done this show for an hour because we have so much to talk <laughs> Isn't it about? interesting? We're the women that lived through the sexual revolution in the 60s, and now we're having another sexual revolution as we're in our 50s and approaching our 60s. You're so right. I guess it's just in our karma. But we just, you know, as you said, Karen, we're just going to keep on communicating. Just yes. give us one of the websites that listeners can go to because we've got about 40 seconds left, and I want to be sure, you know, they want more information. Red Hot Mom. It's redhotmamas.org, copewithmenopause.com, and menopause.org. Dr. Friedman, Karen, it's been great talking to you this morning, and we will keep communicating. have to have you back on the show because we have more questions. And great, Captain. We'd love to be there. It was okay. a pleasure. Thanks for helping us raise people's awareness. Terrific. Thank you very Thanks. much. Thank Sex you. And menopause, Dr. Murray Friedman, Karen Giblin, president of Red Hot Mamas. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to voiceamerica.com, Voice America Women. Talk radio that informs, entertains, and enlightens you. Voice America, Women's Radio Network. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show. For women, men, children, and families, Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. Iris Krasnow, the best-selling author of books on family relationships, hosts the new Internet radio video show, Connecting Women. Connecting Women, airing Thursdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Women's Channel. Iris connects women and families with issues that matter most in relationships, professional pursuits, politics, emotional health, and physical well-being. Cleaning out the closet of your mind with host Debbie Friedman is not just about information. It's about transformation in a very dynamic time. Join Debbie every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Women's Channel and start creating the life you love to live full of passion, purpose, and prosperity. Are you willing to be taught and invest a few minutes each week to learn principles that will ensure your success and fulfillment? Tune in every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time to It's Easier Done Than Said on the Voice America Women's Channel. Talking about what you care about. News, relationships, health, finances. Voice America Women's Radio Network. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on voiceamerica.com, Voice America Women. Joining me this morning is Ruth King. She's author of Healing Rage, Women Making Inner Peace Possible. Ruth is a life coach, a management consultant, and has dedicated much of her life's work to understanding the fiery power of rage and how it can be transformed for positive purposes. And this is all of what she talks about in the book, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Welcome to the show, Ruth. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you. My pleasure. Healing rage. Well, it seems to me, and uh, by the way, I loved your book, but uh, rage is all around us, men and women, but we're going to, I guess, focus healing rage uh, in women, but uh, it seems to me that wherever I go, everybody's angry. Everybody, whether it's the grocery store or whether you're in the car or whether you're fighting with your partner, but uh, it's, it just seems to be so prevalent. Uh, so your book is very timely. 
Yes. Well, it is prevalent, and what happens is rage. Uh, we're we're kind of peaking as a as a society in rage because what's the truth of the matter is that there's so much underneath it that is unresolved. I see rage as something that is symbolic of what's ungrieved. That's what makes it distinct from anger. Anger. Or, you know, we're in the face of situations that anger us throughout the day. But rave has a, has a shield of, of shame around it, and it's usually associated with something that's kind of forgotten, uh, unresolved, and especially ungrieved. So you're saying, Ruth, that like anger is more immediate, uh, you know, the, and, and that rage has a, a more of an underlying quality to it, something that perhaps happened to what we're angry about some, or we're enraged about something that happened in childhood. Um, it, it, there's more depth to the quality of rage rather than I anger. think that's true. I think rage is more symbolic of a life pattern, a way we've learned how to respond to what's difficult and what's intolerable in life. So it's not... Anger, we can confront something that's angry. We can usually let it go. But rage is more kind of a way that we have conditioned ourselves to respond to difficulty. And it, there's a haunting, shaming quality about it that uh, as we get healthier in our lives, we actually face this energy more directly because we have more ability to investigate what it's about. Okay, we've always thought about rage, and I think this is true, and you talk about this in the book, rage is kind of an evil emotion, that it's bad, that it has a really evil quality to it. But you're saying, no, we can turn this into a very positive force, if we understand. Yeah, rage, yeah, rage in and of itself is an emotion. It's a valid, legitimate, predictable emotion. But I think uh, the story we have about it, the way we carry the unresolve of it is what I think causes us the most suffering. Rage, you know, what enrage, things that enrage us is going to happen as part of being human. But how rage is responded to and the resulting stories we carry about it is what causes us harm. And we can clean that up. That's a conditioning we learned and it's something we can unlearn and use in a different way. But we have to understand it first. We have to be willing to acknowledge we that have we have these ways of covering up. Yeah. And that we are covering up. Give us an example, like a real-life example of, of, of uh, somebody, a client, let's say, that you've dealt with uh, experiencing rage and, uh, you know, how you've moved that person into a more positive place. Well, I have, you know, as as you probably know, these six disguises of rage that I talk about in the book, and they're all kind of constructions that we create by the time we're 12 and we carry them throughout our lives and we forget the traumas that are behind them. So one client who is um, a lawyer who uh, had had a pattern, and that's what we look, look for in rage. We look for the pattern, the pain patterns that we carry. She had a pain pattern of being in relationships and they're not lasting very long and uh, she feels like she gives a lot and, you know, this is a common story that we have. We give a lot in relationships. And we don't get the anything people, back. Yeah, the, the people we're partnered with don't get it and, you know, and, and we have this kind of silent resentment about it. Well, the, she wears the devotion disguise of rage, which is characteristic of giving yourself um, under the umbrella of goodness, but really feeling like that's what you have to do in order to have a relationship. So she had uh, uh, met a, a new person in her life and spent a weekend in Vegas, and it was lovely, and she cherished it. And afterwards, she didn't hear from the guy for a few days and began to question herself. And we had been working together for quite a while. The beauty of what she was able to do was the questioning shifted from her recognizing that how she was the longing for wanting to hear from him and what's going on and why hasn't he called and these this kind of mental torment or torture that she was actually um, providing herself, creating through her own story. She was actually able to witness herself doing that, see herself thinking that way, and and to and and we were able to uh, help her see how what the story she carried about the experience was 
first of all, it, it may or may not even be the truth. And secondly, she can witness herself having that story without over-identifying with it. So the work we did was in her seeing that that was her thoughts and those were her feelings, but that's not to be confused with who she is. That's and in that's fact... Go ahead. Yeah, and in fact, this was just a way that she's always done it. It's the way that her mother did it. It's the way that she witnessed her grandmother doing it. So these are ways she learned how to relate. And rage and love are oftentimes really closely related. We share rage with people that we love. Okay, so that's <laughs> one. That is one example, and that's what we, as you say, she learned that from her mother, her grandmother, uh, carried on through the generations. But Ruth, okay, that's one example. Now you have, well, that's, and you have six disguises of rage that you talk about yes. in the book. Another one, what about the dominance one? I was, how, how does that play itself out? Well, the dominance is close to my heart because I think that's the disguise that I wear the most. And most of us wear one or two disguises pretty, pretty naturally um, because these are life patterns, ways we learn to control. Dominance is all about controlling your environment so that you're never controlled. And this especially relates to the people that, you, uh, that are close to your to you in your life, um, people that get close to you that you love, but then they have access, and so therefore they can also hurt you. So uh, one way that that plays out, I can tell a personal story just in terms of my relationship with my son. Yeah, personal the, are the best because I think we learn from those personal stories. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. And your son. My son, so I have a grown son, and I have two grandchildren, and they live in Los Angeles, and I live in Berkeley, and so I have this story about how Los Angeles is not the best place to raise a child. So for years, I've been harping on my son about how you should move out of the area, and the children are at risk, and so on and so forth. And he finally said to me, he said, you know, ever since I've been a father, you've forgotten that I'm your son, and I'm, I'm not only your son, I'm your grown son. And, and so there was something about the way he said that that cracked open my heart, and I was able to find myself looking at the impact I had on his life as opposed to what I felt like his life should be. So all of a sudden I could feel the harshness of me trying to control his life and the risk involved because what he did as a distraction disguise of rage was he distanced from me and he got real busy and I was no longer available and knew what was going on in his life and, you know, oh, Mom, it's all great, but i got to go. And it's like, well, wait, what happened? Well, what happens is when we control or we attempt to control everyone and everything uh, without recognizing that we need to be dealing with our own anxiety, we need to be understanding that we don't control the world, that uh, good and bad things happen, uh, and that we have to comfort ourselves and work with our own pain around that, uh, that becomes our work. And not, not controlling his life, but how I take care of my own anxiety becomes a focus of attention. Yeah, and Ruth, that's much more difficult, or at least in the, in the short run. You know, it's uh, yeah, taking responsibility for your own behavior. You're so right. I have so, I mean, I think I fall into that category somewhat, and I certainly have a lot of friends who do that, especially, you know, this, and it's interesting, this baby boomer generation, they call them helicopter parents hovering over their kids, trying to <laughs> dominate their lives, but they, <laughs> and, 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 you know, trying to control them as if they were, you know, young, young children uh, uh, when they become adults. And I think that's a very common thread that runs through the parenting of, of the baby boomers today. And I don't know how that Oh, fits. I think you're so right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So that's, well, it's what's interesting in terms of claiming this control over your life. I mean, we really do need to turn our attention inward if we're going to heal rage. It can't be about how we don't like the political arena or we don't like the way the kids are doing it. We we really do need to turn our attention to our own pain and take care of it. It's as if, you know, uh, one, I, I tell this story sometimes about the guy who stepped off the curve, the light turned green, he stepped off the curve. The car was speeding, came and hit him, and, you know, 
and so he's spread out on the street. The car keeps going, and he's saying he's screaming, but the light was green. The light was green. <laughs> well, the the ambulance came, took him to the hospital, and his last breath, the light was green. So he was dead right. And sometimes we can be so dead right about our story that we forget that we're hurting, that, you know, there's a more immediate need that we need to take care of, which is our own pain. And sometimes we have to be willing to give up our cherished beliefs and break our loyalty to suffering. And that's the, that to me is the final frontier around uh, the work of healing rage. Rage is a invocation to transform legacies of rage, not just our own. It's an invitation to go there. And those of us that are acknowledging that we are enraged are really at a threshold in their lives because rage doesn't really get our attention until we're ready to deal with it. So that's the good news about it. Yes. But it really isn't... The good news is we can do, as you say, we have to acknowledge it, but we can do something about it. And in the long run, it's going to be much more healthy for all of our relationships. Now, Ruth, we're going to take, we've got a couple minutes left in this seg, but we talked about dominance, devotion, but you have, you know, that's only, what, that's two out of the six disguises of rage. (laughs) So we've got to cover the other ones, too, distraction, dependence, depression, (laughs) defiance. That's a big one. Um, Ah, All of them are big ones. Uh, They are. Yeah. They are. Let me, do you want me to address that quickly now before the break, or you want to come back and speak to that? Do you think you can do it in one minute? I don't think so. I think we can wait. I don't think so either. We can keep the listeners with this one, because, no, because they're really important, and I I do want to take each one of them kind of step by step. Excellent. Yeah, and we are, and I am talking, and you are listening to Ruth King. She's author of Healing Rage, Women Making Inner Peace Possible. I'm Catherine Zox, and you're listening to voiceamerica.com, Voice America Women. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and we'll be back in a minute. We talk with you, not at you. We're Voice America, Women's Radio Network, the new face of talk radio. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. Winning with Wellness where beauty meets health with Dr. Vidushi Babber is a place where women can share their health and beauty tips and learn that wellness means having a positive self-image. Tune in every Wednesday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Women's Channel. What it comes down to, ladies, is that defining line between been there, done that, and ain't going back, baby. Yeah, I've heard them call you yuppies and baby boomers, maybe even dolls, babes, darling, sugar, and sweetheart. But I say that women are truly amazing. Join Dr. Marlene for Amazing Women, Brains, Beauty, and Style every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific right here on the Voice America Women's Radio Network. Finally, radio that was made just for you. Voice America Women's Radio Network. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on voiceamerica.com, voiceamerica.com women. And joining me this morning is Ruth King. She's author of Healing Rage, Women Making Inner Peace Possible. And uh, if you're just joining us, we've kind of given you a roadmap for some of it, but we have lots more to talk about, and it all involves turning your t- attention inward. Um, what do you think, Ruth? We, you know, you have in your book, you outlined six disguises of rage. We talked about dominance. We have now defiance. We talked about devotion, distraction, dependence, depression, all of these. So. <laughs> but first, you have a website, you know, because I think sometimes people like to go to the website while we're talking that you want to mention. Yeah. Yes, the website is HealingRage.com, 
and you'll find loads of information about the uh, Celebration of Rage Retreat, uh, which is a which is a, is a place where women can go and really investigate the the power and wisdom of rage. And there's a link there to purchase the book, and there's also an audio uh, meditation CD uh, entitled "Soothing the Inner Flames of Rage." And um, yeah, so it's lots of good stuff there. Uh, Ruth, are you doing any of these? Uh, um, um retreats here on the East Coast in the New York area because I know I have uh, a lot of people who may be interested in, in obviously uh, signing up. Well, there are um, there is a week, uh, a three-and-a-half-day retreat that's going to be in um, Ohio outside of um, Cincinnati at the Hope Springs Institute. I should have known you from the West Coast. You think Ohio is East Coast. I know, I know, but it's, it's the closest I can get to you right now. <laughs> There's also going to be uh, day-long uh, workshops in New York at the Insight Meditation, uh, New York Insight, Insight Meditation Society, and also in D.C. at the Insight Meditation Community, uh, D.C. All of that information is on the website. Oh, terrific. Um, Great. So for our yes. those listeners, those are, you know, D.C. <laughs> a little bit Great. closer than Ohio. Um, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's the Middle West to us. But anyway, okay. Let's. I understand. Let's get back to the real specifics of how we... Make women making inner peace. How do we do it? How do we work through these disguises of rage? So let me just say a little bit more about these disguises, and then offer some instruction, perhaps, on how we begin the process of of healing. This, this, the six disguises are actually organized in three categories. We have fight types, which is the dominance and defiance. We have flight types which are the distraction and devotion disguises of rage. And we have shrink types, which are the dependence and depression disguises of rage. We've talked about dominance uh, a little earlier, which is that part of us that uh, we distract and control others in order to not be controlled. Defiance is the other fight type. And this is the disguise of rage that's most associated with anger and rage. It's, it's that person who is in a pet, perpetual state of, of anger. They're easily angered. Uh, there's a sense of hostility and blame. And, and what they're really looking for is the person they're most upset with to actually approve of their behavior. So it's unlikely that that happens. But there's a certain way that we're kind of wishing that that would. Okay, Ruth, give us an example of that. Uh, hmm. The there's uh, one good friend of mine who uh, careful. <laughs> <laughs> it is you hear me hesitating. Yeah, I heard you hesitating. Uh, a dear yeah. woman that I love. You yes. Know? <laughs> okay. Someone who um, had uh, breast cancer and was uh, treated and. What that brought up was such tremendous vulnerability for her that that her her rage really uh, kind of moved in and and took took over for a while, and she was absolutely outraged with anybody who got close to her and could see her vulnerability. And um, what she was doing was really hoping, even though she was angry and enraged and mad and understandably mad at this. Uh, what she was hoping for was that people would overlook her behavior and um, be willing to... The, pri- the cost of admission to be in her life was to be able to tolerate her hostility and blame. You know, it almost and reminds in- me of that stage at, at two and a half, you know, the, two and a yes. half or two-year-olds who do exactly that. They're always enraged. They're always testing you. Will you still love me if I... That's right. Yeah, and, and it's sort of going back to that, that stage, I think. I think so too, and and it's really heightened when we find that the disguise we wear isn't really getting us what we want, and that especially happens in the face of loss. Uh, I always call it loss, lust, or longing. So it kind of covers all of the territory there. But we do. Uh, uh, we're really all rage is is pain. It's it, what you're seeing is pain. What we tend to respond to is the behavior, but what's really behind it is pain. And part of what the book is offering are ways to kind of bypass looking at the behavior and recognize that there's pain there that needs to be addressed. And, and you is, even talk about in the book about keeping a rage journal. 
Yes, yes, yes. The journal uh, helps us uh, become more mindful and aware of the ways we disguise our rage. And not only a journal, but also paying attention to our dreams. Dreams are places where our rage really reveals itself. Sometimes it comes in the form of a mother or a father that's raging in the dream, and you think it's about them. But it's really about the mother part of you that's raging or the father part of you that's raging. There's a wonderful percept tool that's described in the book that allows us to claim our experiences of rage so that we're not projecting them out on the world. Also, part of this process involves meditation, and I, I yes. yeah, and I, I I have been thinking about meditation for myself. So it was like, hey, this is um, kind of right on target, I think. But uh, it, it's uh, it, that meditation is part of the healing process. And what happens with meditation? It's, it's actually so fundamental because what we're what I've found in working with rage is that when we're paying kind attention to rage, it ceases to be a problem. When, when we're watching it and, and becoming more aware of it without the judgment of it, it literally ceases to be a problem, and we can experience that most directly. In the meditation practice, what we want to do in turning our attention inward is to, first of all, recognize how the disguises of rage are revealing themselves, usually in the form of a story that we can't let go of or you know, somebody we're projecting the rage onto that, you know, some system or person that we feel like needs to change. Recognizing, this is what I'm seeing, this is what I'm feeling. The second thing we want to do is accept that whatever it is that we're seeing and feeling is rooted in something older than that moment, usually. Our responses to rage are usually older stories that we haven't quite Resolved. And so that is the ex- key. And we only yes. have a couple minutes left, so I, I want to kind of end on that note and direct mm-hmm. listeners to healingrage.com. Excellent. And Excellent. Uh, it really is, it's described as a revolutionary new book on rage, and it really is, and it helps women to move towards transformation and stop contributing to your own suffering, ladies. So that's what exactly. Yeah, that's what it's all about. It's been great having you on the show this morning. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. I've loved it. It's thank you. Excellent, excellent book and uh, Healing Rage: Women Making Inner Peace Possible. Ruth King. Nice to have you on. And maybe when you get east to New York or Washington, uh, uh, I'll go to one of the uh, the seminars and love to meet you. Would love to have yeah. you. Thank you so much for your time. Great. Thanks, Ruth. You're be well. Catherine Zock show and we have to say goodbye today on voiceamerica.com voice america women i'm your social worker with a microphone have a great day and i'll see you next week we hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Catherine Zock show you can listen live every thursday morning at 8 a.m pacific time on the voice america women's channel want to know more about Catherine? visit her website at www.catherinezox.com be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversation with Catherine Zox. we talk with you not at you we're voice america women's radio network the new face of talk radio Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel.